Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, On a very regular basis, when we post about slavery on our Facebook page, especially when that post has some kind of connection to the more recent past or the present, uh, somebody always comes along and leaves a comment that what we should really be talking about is the Irish slaves. And these were, according to the commenter, people who were enslaved earlier and treated worse than people from Africa were. It's really like clockwork. And the more widely a post gets shared, the more likely it is to get these kinds of comments. This idea that Irish people were enslaved and that that is what we really should be talking about tends to be circulated a whole lot more aggressively Anytime there's a lot of mainstream news coverage or other really prominent discussion about equal rights or social issues related to Black Americans. Like, this is not 100% unique to the United States, but that's where our experience is. So, for example, right now, uh, when there's ongoing and very widespread protest against police brutality and racism going on in the United States and around the world, this whole idea of the Irish slaves really distorts some things that really did happen. So today we're going to talk about that history and how it's being really twisted and misused today. And yes, I recognize the irony in doing this episode at all, but this has come up so many times that I would really like to dispel it. And before we get started, I also wanted to note that one particular researcher, which is Irish librarian and independent scholar Liam Hogan, has done enormous amounts of work documenting not just the history of this idea, but also how it's become a racist meme. Uh, His work is one of several resources that were used in this episode, and he has been so diligent and so prolific on this subject for so many years um, that even though it's not sourced only from his work, we would be remiss not to mention it up front. In general, memes and viral posts about the idea of Irish slaves misrepresent the English subjugation of Ireland, which is something that really did happen. They also misrepresent the nuances in how European powers, specifically Britain, used unfree labor while colonizing the Americas. That is another thing that really did happen. All of this history gets meshed together, and we're going to start with the general background of unfree labor. When European nations started colonizing the Americas, they wanted a plentiful source of inexpensive labor. And there just were not enough free people who wanted to emigrate and could pay their way by themselves. And, of course, unfree labor can be a lot cheaper than paying free people fair wages. So a lot of the colonial labor force was not free. It was made up of people who were indentured or enslaved. The colonists' first enslaved workforce in the Americas was primarily indigenous people from the places that were being colonized. Colonists either enslaved indigenous people and forced them to work in the colony, or they captured indigenous people and transported them back to Europe to sell for profit. And as we talked about in our episode on King Philip's War, colonial officials also enslaved indigenous people and transported them to other colonies. This practice started to wane in the late 1700s as the transatlantic slave trade became more established and African people and their descendants made up more and more of the enslaved workforce. We talked about indentured servitude in our episode on Bacon's Rebellion back in April of 2019. So as a recap, in an indenture, a person signed a contract to work for a specific period of time. 
During that time, they were not free, although they were still considered to be people. They still had a lot of the same legal rights and protections as non-indentured people of the same nationality. Indentures typically lasted for between five and eight years, although in some cases it might be as long as 10 years. In exchange for this commitment, indentured workers were given passage to the Americas. At least in theory, they were also supposed to be given food, shelter, clothing, the tools they needed to do their work, and some kind of compensation when their indenture ended. However, there were definitely cases in which indentured people were not given any of that, and cases in which people did not live to see the end of their contract, whether that was due to disease, overwork, poor living and working conditions, abuse, or some other cause. The degree of choice and freedom that a person had in signing one of these contracts was really all over the map. There were people who wanted to immigrate and to start a new life for all kinds of reasons, but couldn't afford to do it unless they signed an indenture. Other people were indentured and deported after being convicted of a crime. Some indentured workers were prisoners of war or political prisoners. And, of course, there were a lot of people who technically signed an indenture of their own free will, but whose social and economic circumstances really left them no other option. Irish slave memes typically reference Irish indentured workers who were transported to the island of Barbados in the Eastern Caribbean. Of course, colonists and their labor force were not the island's first inhabitants. The first people to settle on Barbados probably arrived from the South American continent sometime in the 17th century BCE. By about 500 CE, the island was home to both Carib and Arawak peoples. The first Europeans to arrive on the island were the Spanish in the 16th century, and the name Barbados was coined by the Portuguese not long after. That means bearded ones, and it's probably a reference to the island's bearded fig trees. Spanish forces used the indigenous population of Barbados as a source of enslaved labor extensively through the 16th century, enslaving people from the island and moving them to colonies elsewhere. After nearly stripping the island of its population, they essentially abandoned it in the late 1500s. Then an English expedition arrived on Barbados in 1625, carrying about 80 English people and about 10 enslaved Africans. Within two years, England was actively building a colony on the island and looking for a profitable export crop to grow there. The first exports were primarily cotton and tobacco, along with products like indigo and aloe in smaller amounts. At first, most of the labor force on Barbados was indentured people from England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, most of whom had come voluntarily. But as early as 1636, the Barbados Council was outlining the distinction between indentured people from Europe, often described as Christian in laws and other documents, and enslaved people from Africa or the Americas. That year, the council resolved that, quote, Negroes and Indians that came here to be sold should serve for life unless a contract was before made to the contrary. On the other hand, Europeans who arrived without a contract were put into an indenture according to the, quote, custom of the country. That's basically saying five to eight years. In the 1640s, the island started shifting its production over to sugar. That change happened pretty rapidly. By 1650, sugar was essentially the only export crop that was being grown on the island, although food crops were also being grown to support the island's population. 
Before this shift, there had been lots of smaller farms, each with its own relatively small workforce of free, indentured, and enslaved workers. And most of the indentured workers had signed their indentures voluntarily. As the island turned to sugar production, many of these smaller farms were consolidated. There were still free, indentured, and enslaved people working, but the farms got bigger and bigger, and they were owned by fewer people. As they shifted to sugar, these plantations also needed a lot more labor. Sugar production was difficult and dangerous. Many of the planters and overseers developed a reputation in Barbados for being particularly cruel to the workers, including the indentured servants. Laws specifically targeted indentured workers' behavior, with punishments for most infractions involving time being added on to their indenture. But some punishments included being whipped or pilloried. All this meant that fewer people in Europe were choosing to come to Barbados voluntarily, and whether they came voluntarily or involuntarily, a lot of them were leaving the island when their indenture ended. This just led to a lot of turnover and a general shortage of labor. English law at this point didn't really differentiate between voluntary and involuntary indentures. And it didn't really differentiate among English, Irish, Welsh, and Scottish indentured workers. It did, however, increasingly differentiate between indentured and enslaved workers. And we're going to talk more about that in just a bit. At the beginning of the 1640s, so at the same time as this sugar transition was happening, events in Europe dramatically affected the indentured labor force in Barbados, as well as in other parts of the Caribbean. And we will get to that after a quick sponsor break. The use of Irish indentured labor in Barbados, as well as in other English colonies, was directly tied to English subjugation of Ireland during the 17th century, which of course had roots going back much further. Briefly, England took control of a portion of Ireland in the 12th century. This part of the island under direct English control became known as the Pale, and over the next few centuries, England repeatedly tried to expand its influence and its territory beyond that region. This included a series of plantations, or resettlements of English people into Ireland. And it was also complicated by religious divisions following the Protestant Reformation. Between 1639 and 1651, there was an interconnected series of violent conflicts in England, Scotland, and Ireland, which are sometimes grouped together as the War of the Three Kingdoms. One piece of this was the Irish Uprising in 1641, also called the Ulster Rebellion, and that followed on the heels of the Ulster Plantation of 1609. This rebellion led to massive sectarian violence and the deaths of at least 12,000 people. Another of the conflicts was the English Civil War between the Royalists, who supported the monarch Charles I, and the Parliamentarians, who, as the name suggests, supported Parliament. There were a lot of factors involved with this war, and one of them was that the king raised an army against the wishes of Parliament in order to deal with this rebellion in Ireland. Prior to all of this, most indentured workers sent to the Americas had either gone voluntarily or had been convicted of a specific crime. But during and after the war, political prisoners were increasingly indentured and deported as well. For example, the parliamentarians deported people for serving in the Royalist Army, although there was an exception for people who were compelled to fight rather than having joined the Royalists voluntarily. 
After the Battle of Worcester, which was the last major battle of the war in 1651, at least 10,000 people were deported, including people from Britain and Ireland, as well as people from Germany. Although these indentures were supposed to be temporary, the deportation was permanent, with those deported, quote, not returning at any time to the prejudice of this kingdom. Although this wave of mass deportations in the 17th century has become most associated with Ireland, the first wave of people to be deported were Scottish royalists. Parliament ordered this first wave of mass deportations in 1648, and it's not clear exactly how many people were deported. Estimates range from the hundreds to the thousands. English royalist Sir Edmund Verney described it as saying, quote, I think they mean to transplant the whole nation of Scots, Deportation of Scottish royalists and other people from Scotland continued after the 1648 order, although they were more often sent to New England instead of to the Caribbean. The next year, mass deportation began in Ireland. On September 3, 1649, Oliver Cromwell's forces lay siege to Drogheda, finally breaching the city's walls on September 10th. What followed was a massacre, with Cromwell's forces killing Catholic priests and monks on site and burning Catholic churches. At least 2,000 people were massacred, with accounts of English soldiers killing one in every 10 of the surviving Irish force and sending the rest to Barbados. Soon, so many people were being sent to Barbados and other Caribbean islands that the name became a verb, meaning to send a prisoner to Barbados. Parliament's deportations to Barbados paused briefly in 1650 because the colony's government had royalist sympathies, but they resumed in 1652. That same year, Parliament passed the Act for the Settlement of Ireland, which confiscated Irish land from people who had participated in the Rebellion of 1641, redistributed that land to Cromwell's supporters, and it also penalized people who had participated in the uprising in any way. This involved still more people being deported to Barbados. As we said earlier, English people had also been subject to involuntary indentures. One reason was that England had a very broad law that authorized the transport of, quote, rogues, vagrants, and sturdy beggars in England to the colonies in the Americas. As all of this was going on, this law was also applied to Ireland, with authorities given incredibly broad authority to deport any Irish person who was believed to be, quote, dangerous to the Commonwealth. By the time this law was applied to Ireland, King Charles I had been beheaded, the parliamentarians had won the Civil War. So people who were dangerous to the Commonwealth included Catholics, royalists, poor people, and Oliver Cromwell's personal enemies. In general, the English thought that the Irish were uncivilized barbarians. They disapproved of Irish people's religion and dress and sexual mores and culture. This was especially true of Irish people who had retained strong connections to Celtic customs, so it's very likely that some of the people who were deported were deported simply for being Irish. It is not clear exactly how many people were deported during these years. Estimates range from as low as 10,000 to as high as 50,000 Irish people between 1640 and 1660, when King Charles II was restored as monarch and rolled back some of Cromwell's policies. These forced deportees were arriving as Barbados was shifting its system of agriculture from a variety of exports to just sugar, meaning that Barbados saw a huge influx of Irish indentured labor, And unlike in earlier years of English colonization of the island, a lot of these people had been indentured against their will. 
Although the law recognized clear differences between indentured and enslaved workers, they generally ate similar food, lived in similar housing, and did similar work. A critical difference between the indentured and enslaved workers was that the indentured people's bondage was temporary. As we've noted, there were certainly cases where people were not freed when they were supposed to be or otherwise did not live to the end of their indenture. But it is also clear that there were more and more formerly indentured Irish people living in Barbados as time went on, some of whom didn't want to work on sugar plantations anymore, but also didn't have a means to leave. By late 1657, there were reports of large numbers of landless, unemployed Irish people in Barbados who were roaming the countryside, causing mischief and supporting themselves through theft. In September of that year, Governor Daniel Searle issued a public proclamation requiring Irish indentured workers to have permission slips to leave their plantations. He also ordered that Irish people who had no fixed address and couldn't really explain what their purpose was when questioned could be forced to work on a plantation for a year. He also made it illegal to sell weapons and ammunition to Irish people, and any Irish person found in possession of weapons could be whipped and jailed. If you have studied U.S. history at all, this probably sounds a little like the freedom papers that free Black people were required to carry to prove that they were not really enslaved, and like the laws that restricted free people's behavior and movement. And while there is some similarity there, there are also some key differences between the indenture of Irish people and the enslavement of Africans in Barbados. And we're going to get into all of that after we first pause for a sponsor break. Although indentured servitude was common in British territory in the 17th century, there were some discussions happening about whether this was something English people should be subjected to. In 1659, two English men named Marcellus Rivers and Oxenbridge Foyle published England's Slavery or Barbados Merchandise, and that compiled various correspondence along with a petition that they presented to Parliament, quote, on behalf of themselves and threescore and ten more freeborn Englishmen sold uncondemned into slavery. In their account, those three score and ten men had been arrested following an uprising in Salisbury in 1654. But they claimed that some of them had never been to Salisbury or borne any kind of arms. Rivers and Foyle also claimed they had been sent to Barbados without any sort of fair trial, where they were sold, quote, as the goods and chattels of Martin Knoll. They described, quote, grinding at the mills and attending at the furnaces or digging in this scorching island having naught to feed on, notwithstanding their hard labor, but potato roots, nor to drink, but water with such roots washed in it, besides the bread and tears of their own afflictions. Being bought and sold still from one planter to another, or attached as horses and beasts for the debts of their masters, being whipped at the whipping posts as rogues for their master's pleasure, and sleeping in styes worse than hogs in England, and many other ways made miserable, beyond expression or Christian imagination. Sir Martin Knoll gave his own testimony that merchants on Barbados had asked him to bring back artificers, and that these artificers were indentured for five years and then given a year's salary. He said that the work was hard, but that the workers were treated civilly, and that the most odious work was, quote, mostly carried on by the Negroes. 
This testimony about conditions in Barbados was not particularly honest or forthcoming. This was somebody whose livelihood involved transporting large numbers of indentured workers across the Atlantic. So Noel was definitely protecting his own interests by minimizing conditions for indentured workers on Barbados. And the debate in Parliament that followed this petition did not touch on the larger question of whether slavery was wrong, just whether it was wrong to subject Englishmen to it even temporarily. They didn't reach a satisfactory answer to this question, in part because chattel slavery had become deeply established in Barbados by the time Rivers and Foyle filed their petition, and it was replacing indentured servitude as the primary form of labor. Barbados was shifting from a society that had slaves to a true slave society, one in which slavery was the primary source of labor, with the society itself focused on maintaining and defending slavery. You should also note this petition is one of the sources for, like, how bad conditions were for Irish indentured laborers. But, like, to be clear, they were English. <laughs> they were filing it on the behalf of English people, not Irish. So, although slavery, as a practice, was well-established in Barbados, by the time that Parliament heard this petition, it wasn't really encoded in law That changed in 1661 when Governor Humphrey Warren signed an Act for Better Ordering and Governing of Negroes. It outlined a series of increasingly severe and horrifying corporal punishments if an enslaved person, quote, offered any violence to any Christian, while also stating, quote, and it is further enacted and ordained that if any Negro or other slave under punishment by his master unfortunately shall suffer in life or member, which seldom happens, no person whatsoever shall be liable to any fine, therefore. In other words, it was legal to kill an enslaved person as punishment. This 1661 law was the first comprehensive slave code in English territory, and it became the template for other slave codes in the English colonies. It used the words Negro and slave interchangeably. Use the word Christian more often than it referred to, like, a specific nationality. Because at this point, like, the idea of Negro, meaning all Africans, like, that was in- used in the language a lot. But, like, the idea of white, at least, like, whiteness existed in terms of how it was influencing society, but it had not made its way into language in the way that people use it today, really. Uh, on the same day that he signed this 1661 law about the ordering and governing of Negroes, Uh, The governor also signed the Act for Good Governing of Servants and Ordering the Rights Between Masters and Servants. Unlike the Act for Better Ordering and Governing of Negroes, this act granted specific rights to indentured workers, including that justices of the peace had to hear disputes over how much time an an indentured person had served, and a ban on indenturing English children under the age of 14 It's not totally clear if English is meant to include Irish and Scottish children in this law. The law also required masters to care for servants who became ill, and it required married indentured workers to be sold together. Enslaved Africans had none of these protections. Together, these two laws established a legal difference between being an indentured servant and being a slave. Servants, being under English law, were entitled to being tried before a jury of their peers if charged with a crime, but enslaved people explicitly were not. Servants and enslaved people both needed tickets, which were essentially permission slips to leave their plantations. But servants were required to get them from their masters, while masters were required to issue them to enslaved people. 
Slave owners were required to capture and whip escaping slaves, but there was no similar provision requiring the capture and punishment of indentured servants who left before their indenture was up. For most, but not all, crimes, punishments for indentured people involved adding time onto their contract, although in some cases the law allowed for indentured people to be lashed or pilloried. Punishments for enslaved people, as we referenced earlier, involved this series of increasingly severe, disfiguring, and just horrifying corporal punishments ending in execution. By the time these two laws were passed, enslaved Africans had become the majority of the population of Barbados. By the mid-1670s, the island had about 33,000 enslaved Africans and their descendants, and 21,500 total Europeans, both free and indentured, and about 1,000 enslaved indigenous men from Northeast North America. Most of the planters on the island were English, although some were Irish, Scottish, or Welsh, some of whom had arrived in Barbados as indentured workers. It definitely was not possible for every indentured person to move into the planter class, but there were definitely people who did. The shift in population both created and solved some problems from the planter's point of view. As we said earlier, the system of indenture had involved a lot of turnover and labor shortages as people stopped coming to the island voluntarily and as they left at the end of their contracts. This, of course, did not happen with enslaved workers who were enslaved for life and whose enslavement was passed down to their children through their mother. But since so many former indentured workers were leaving Barbados at the end of their contract, there also just were not enough white people on the island to maintain the militia. Consequently, the Barbados Assembly passed a series of laws to encourage planters to hire more white labor and to encourage white laborers to stay on the island after their indentures were over. This included the 1699 Act for the Encouragement of White Servants, which gave white servants the right to bring complaints of severe or harsh usage before the court. It's likely that there were people who didn't bring such complaints because of a fear of retaliation, but there were also indentured workers who were freed by court order because of mistreatment under this law. The law had no such provision for enslaved Africans. These legal differences between enslaved and indentured people continued to grow through subsequent laws. For example, an indentured worker could testify against the person who held their indenture in court, but enslaved people in Barbados could not testify against any white person until 1831. It was illegal to murder an indentured servant, but the murder of an enslaved person was legal until 1818. While it was true that indentured people could be bought and sold as property during the term of their indenture, once that indenture was over, they were free. While not only were enslaved people property for life, but as we noted, their children were also property from the time they were born based on the enslaved status of their mother. Although indentured servitude declined steadily through the late 17th and early 18th century in Barbados, slavery wasn't abolished in Barbados until 1834. We should note that at various points in the 17th and 18th centuries, Irish indentured workers were involved in uprisings against Barbados's planter class, both on their own and as part of uprisings that were planned and carried out primarily by enslaved Africans. But the differences between the two groups were present, even in the way colonial authorities responded to these uprisings. Overwhelmingly, Africans were executed for their role, or even just alleged role, in uprisings. 
Irish workers often received no punishment. For example, one 1692 plan involved indentured Irish workers getting English officials drunk ahead of the uprising. After the plan was uncovered, 92 enslaved people were executed. More than 20 others died, either from injuries they had sustained or from other causes. The Irish workers who were arrested were ultimately released with no punishment. After this, landowners started petitioning not to be sent any more Irish laborers. So, to be very clear, England oppressed Ireland systematically and violently for centuries, and Irish people were involuntarily deported to Barbados and other colonies in massive numbers as indentured servants. And in the first years of English presence on Barbados, most of the workers were indentured Europeans and not enslaved Africans. But there are real and meaningful differences between indentured servitude and slavery and in how these two populations fared in Barbados and elsewhere in the decades and centuries that followed. The sources that people generally cite to back up the idea of Irish people being the first slaves generally conflate indentured servitude and slavery as the same thing. One book called To Hell or Barbados uses the word slavery very broadly and applies descriptions, like actual historical descriptions, of the mistreatment of enslaved Africans to Irish indentured workers, even when there's no evidence to back that up. The book White Cargo, The Forgotten History of Britain's White Slaves in America, similarly conflates chattel slavery and indentured servitude. In the words of the authors, quote, slavery is not defined by time, but by the experience of the subject. The biggest online source for the idea that Irish people were the first slaves is a 2008 article called The Irish Slave Trade, The Forgotten White Slaves that was published by the Center for Research on Globalization, which PolitiFact describes as, quote, a Canadian website that bills itself as an alternative news source but has advanced specious conspiracy theories on topics like 9-11, vaccines, and global warming. A lot of the claims put forth in that article are demonstrably untrue, including that there was a forced breeding program between indentured Irish people and enslaved Africans. There is just no evidence for any of this. There are also lots of viral images and memes purporting to be about the realities of Irish slavery in the Caribbean, and these posts frequently use pictures that have nothing to do with 17th century Barbados. Many of them are photos that are at least 200 years more recent, showing people in a completely different place and time. And some of them really do depict actual historical injustices and atrocities, like prisoners of war who were liberated from a Japanese camp in World War II, or child laborers working in a coal mine in 1911. This does a disservice to those people and that history, and to the people in history of the Caribbean. If you want to see a lot of examples of this, of just pictures that are being used to supposedly be about Irish slaves that are really about something completely different, uh, Liam Hogan, who we mentioned at the top of the show, has collected a ton of them with references to what is really shown in the picture. Lastly, in addition to conflating indentured servitude and slavery and using imagery dishonestly and distorting the history of both Ireland and Barbados, memes about Irish slavery are often shared in a way that tries to shut down conversations about the real systemic oppression that Black people in the United States and elsewhere, including Ireland, uh, but the U.S. is where we have experience with this, uh, where that's happening every day. 
the tone is often along the lines of Irish people were the first slaves and they slash we aren't asking for some kind of reparations. This deflection is another disservice to everyone involved, but especially to Black people. It glosses over the centuries of sustained and systemic racism that Black people really have faced, including hundreds of years of hereditary race-based chattel slavery, discriminatory Black codes that were passed after the U.S. Civil War, Jim Crow segregation, lynching, massive waves of racist anti-Black mob violence, and housing and lending discrimination, all of which we have talked about on the podcast before. It also glosses over some things we haven't talked about but are on the list to be talked about at some point in the future, like the way Black Americans were excluded from a lot of the programs involved with the New Deal during the Great Depression and excluded from many elements of the GI Bill. It really goes on and on. It also glosses over the real discrimination that Irish people have faced, both in Britain and Ireland and in the U.S., especially as Irish immigration to the U.S. peaked after the Great Famine in the 1840s. Irish people did face prejudice, housing discrimination, and job discrimination, both for being Irish and, in the case of Irish Catholics, because of their religion. And the use of these memes and the way they're implemented in these conversations derails an honest discussion of how Irish-American communities in the 19th century took an active part in perpetuating slavery and racism. That's been touched on a bit in the archive in our episode on the New York draft riots in which a predominantly Irish mob attacked Black communities for four days, burning down the homes of Black people and abolitionists as well as the colored orphan asylum. But that was not an isolated incident. There were definitely exceptions, but as a group, Irish Americans in the 19th century were vocally against the abolition of slavery, in part because free Black and Irish workers would then be competing for the same jobs, but also because of perceptions that abolitionist organizations were focused on the needs of Africans and their descendants instead of on the suffering of Irish people affected by the famine. In reality, a lot of abolitionist organizations also raised money for famine relief. Yeah, in the years leading up to the uh, the Civil War, there was a movement in Ireland to repeal the Act of Union that had made Ireland and England into one kingdom. And one of the most vocal proponents of this repeal movement was also an ardent abolitionist. And the threat of anti-abolitionism in Irish-American communities was so strong that abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison suspected that their strong support of the repeal movement was basically, like, if we can get this repealed, that guy will have no more platform and maybe he will shut up about this whole slavery thing. Also, all of this feeds into the path that Irish Americans took to move out of being second-class citizens in the U.S., both through local, state, and federal politics and through moving into civil service jobs, including becoming firefighters and police, which, honestly, that feels like a subject for a whole different episode. That's why nobody talks about the Irish slaves. I resisted the temptation to just say, because that wasn't a thing for half an hour. <laughs> um, uh, I'm laughing only at your temptation resistance, not at the subject. <laughs> uh, do you have listener mail for us, Tracy? I do have listener mail. This listener mail is from Thomas. <laughs> and Thomas says, I'm conscious that what I am writing about is possibly a misspoke moment rather than an error in the script, but the figure you used early in the episode, that episode being about Watt Tyler's Rebellion, 
uh, early in the episode of 60,000 in England pre-plague is a very low estimate and so much lower than any I've ever heard. I did a double take. Attached to the paper calculating it, page 22, the figure is given from one estimate is 4.81 million just before the plague. Obviously, calculating the exact number of people in historical eras is a really contentious topic as there are so many variables, but I've never known a source to put England's population so low in recorded history, which for England is traditionally from Julius Caesar's invasion. I wonder if you found a figure for a county and assumed it meant England. Uh, I'm going to pause here and say... I don't know how I made that error. Usually when we get an email about an error, like I try to figure out where that error got introduced into the show because maybe there's something I could do in my own process that would prevent a similar error from happening in the future. In this case, I have no idea. It's likely that a paper was talking about a specific county or a specific town and like, and I misread it and thought that it was talking about all of England. But uh, at this point, I tried to go back through my sources and I was like, wow, I have no idea. Um, So that number was way too low. Uh, To return to the email, it was a great episode as ever. And the line about bad takes about the plague made me cackle like an old witch. In my schooling, we were taught that the plague ended serfdom in England, introducing a wage economy, but not that it caused the Renaissance. As an aside, it's often said that my home county of Norfolk didn't regain its pre-plague population. We have a number of churches without villages to this day. Though the overall population has recovered greatly in the last century and exceeded pre-plague at last, there are still many churches that stand alone in the fields or with a single farm for their whole parish. Some of the latter still hold a church service at harvest, but they otherwise are kept as historical relics by the church's conservation trust or have become ruins." In Devon, Yorkshire, and other places, you can often see ridge and furrow on the uplands, now mostly sheep grazing. This is often where marginal land pre-plague was farmed and after the plague was abandoned to livestock since there weren't enough folk to farm marginal land. This is most obvious from the air. Spend some time on Google Earth over Dartmoor or Exmoor and you can probably spot some. This goes on with some additional details um, about... Uh, medieval villages in the area, and a local legend uh, about where plague victims were buried at Dead Man's Hill in Norfolk. Um, Just a lot of ways that you can still see evidence of the plague in the area today. So uh, it's a little bit of a longer email. I'm just going to skip to the end, which is uh, keep up the good work. Podcasts are currently a great tonic and break from the present. Yours sincerely, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas, for this note. Again, I have no idea how I made that error. Um, I kind of wish I did, because that's a very significant number between what I put in the script and what existed in reality. My theory is that it is probably something as simple as a typo. Yeah, I, I, I can sort of visualize in my head a PDF with the number 60,000 in it. Um, uh, and, and But, like, I... My attempts to go through uh, the sources, like, didn't they did not yield the answer. Um, but also, a typo is a possibility. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and Pinterest and Twitter and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts. <music> 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.